0: Welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today is a very, very special episode because my guest is my dad, Vittorio Farina. He visited this past holiday season from Europe where he lives, and we and assorted family went up to Palm Springs to enjoy the new year and just sort of relax and eat and drink and so forth. And uh, I brought my podcasting equipment because I decided that this was a great opportunity to get my dad on the mics and uh, get a little bit of his story. So many of you may not be aware of the fact that my dad is a chemist uh, and has been working in the industry for a number of decades now, working on drug development and process development, basically just making molecules. So my dad is an expert in making molecules, and uh, this is also somewhat of my area of expertise. I would not say anywhere near uh, to his level, but this is what I studied as an undergraduate and graduate student, and so we do start Uh, skew a little bit more technical than some of my episodes just because we both have much of the vernacular to get into the nitty-gritty, but I really, I wanted to go there because I was very curious about his opinion on a number of things, uh, and so this is all contextualized in sort of his story uh, in, from his education through various jobs working for various pharmaceutical companies, and now transitioning and working, uh, being an entrepreneur, working as a consultant. Um, I wanted to hear some of the stories that I had not heard yet, or had not heard before, regarding his career and also see where he wants to go and what he's going to do and, uh, and, and, and all of that. So this is a great episode. I, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. I hope you will enjoy it as well and, and learn a thing or two about, uh, about chemistry, about molecules, about pharmaceuticals, uh, and about medicine in general. There's a lot of very good nuggets and very good wisdom in here. So without further delay, let's gather around the campfire and hear a chemist's retrospective. Good spot.
1: Well, you know, it's December... And it's 20 degrees Celsius, and uh, can't complain about that, blue skies. Uh-huh.
0: So, to all the yeah, listeners it's... who have no concept of Celsius. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so it's uh, about 70 degrees, Yeah, and it's sunny. And it's it's not
0: bad and in so... the sun, yeah. I mean, for for December, certainly, it's definitely not the season that is intended. Palm Springs is usually a summer. Yeah,
1: thing, I don't but... need the snow for Christmas. So right. I'm pretty happy
0: with this. But you got a little snow when you went over to Joshua Tree.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's about 5,000 feet, so mm-hmm. there's snow on the ground, and it's... I'd never seen the desert, uh, you, know, you know, under the snow. So it's it's not it's bad. It's a great experience.
0: So America is not so bad. <laughs> no, even though you have fled back to Europe, but um, oh, so so we'll get to that. But let, let's talk. Uh, I want to start by uh, give us the sort of the you know a little bit of a summary of your career from your education through to what you're doing now.
1: Well, I grew up in Pisa, Italy, and uh, I went to school there, and then I went to the local university. I had to decide what i wanted to do i thought i'd give uh, chemistry a shot i didn't know any chemistry but i knew it was difficult so it might be a good challenge
0: that's it you just were sort of like i'm going to do something hard
1: something different because i had done classical studies greek ancient greek latin and mm-hmm. wanted to do something different mm-hmm. and i thought i would give chemistry a try six months and i loved it from the first day so there was no doubt i was going to stay in chemistry and graduated And I chose organic chemistry as my field, subfield, which I thought, you know, I wanted to make molecules. I wanted to put molecules together. And, you know, I wasn't really having a lot of luck there because the school wasn't that great. I mean, no structures, no knowledge of synthesis. It was mostly a physical chemistry, uh, theoretical chemistry school. So one day, uh, that's a momentous uh, event in my life. And I, I went to the library and there was a flyer, a single flyer on the bulletin board. There was uh, graduate studies at the University of Alberta. I never heard of Alberta, but I made a copy of it. So took first, it home. you
0: looked it up. You said, "What? What is Alberta?" Yeah, but <laughs> it sounds,
1: you know, sounds American. So, you know, maybe I'll give it a shot. So, anyway, I took it home and I figured it out. And I didn't speak any English, but you know, mm-hmm. two years later, fast forward, two years later, I'm mm-hmm. a Alberta. Had, did you know
0: anything <laughs> about Canada? You th- you thought it was maybe America, but then what were their pictures? Or no, what, I looked you it just... up. I looked it up. Yeah. Of course,
1: we did searching. I did some searching and brochures. You know, it took two years to do all the tests: the TOEFL test, yeah, test of English as a foreign language, graduate research, uh, graduate. Testing, so you had to
0: learn English first. You, you were like, uh, okay, we're g- I want to go to Alberta, but I'm going to learn English. Well, I had
1: to wing it, but I was you know. lucky that I can read it. I couldn't really understand it, but I could read it. So
0: I actually uh, didn't didn't know that this was all from a flyer. I thought I thought it was premeditated. I thought you. <laughs> well, there you was an interest to. in Canada per se,
1: but yeah. I didn't know what this flyer was. So you know, I thought that had to be the place. So mm-hmm. you know, two years later, with a degree, master's, it was a BS, five year degree in chemistry. I landed in Edmonton. It was a great time. They had all unbelievable structures and things I could only dream of. I mean, they had so much money and so many students. It was international place with a lot of people from all over the world. I had a guy, a fantastic professor, Professor Clive. Derek Clive who taught me pretty much everything I needed to know. I mean, how to be a professional, how you run research, how you write a paper, how you search, how you come up with ideas, how you develop something new. So I was pretty happy there, and it was really four great years. After that, I did a postdoc at Cornell.
0: Well, let's uh, talk, what, what was your, your thesis and all that? What what kind of stuff were you doing in the well, lab there?
1: Well, we were trying to create some methodology there, and so it was pretty esoteric stuff. Uh, I started with selenium chemistry, selenium electrophiles. You know, they react to unsaturated moieties, and you can cyclize things. It's what's called cyclo-functionalization. Mm-hmm. You made a cycle, and then you still had selenium on the molecule. But you know, selenium is not that practical; it's pretty toxic.
0: I've never seen a heterocycle with selenium in it.
1: <laughs> so you know, it's, and then I switched to cuprates, so uh, compounds of copper with c- carbon-copper bonds. They do strange things like conjugate addition to all of it. It's very specialized. Mm-hmm. I invented a new reagent that was very, very neat, and I did some other stuff that didn't work, but I learned. Uh, you know. You to got persevere. A few papers. Uh, I got five papers and wow. I had to persevere, and, and that's not to, bad for uh, a PhD. Yeah, it was about average, mm-hmm. so you know, uh, it was it was a good, very good experience. I came out basically a professional and did a postdoc. I had a couple more papers at Cornell, and then you know I wanted to stay in the US or go back to Canada, but neither country would offer me a job because I didn't have a, a green card. So uh, you know, it was really hard to get interviews and. The first company that gave me an interview was Bristol Myers in Syracuse and um, got the job and, uh, you know, got the job in process development. So we had to make drugs. We had to develop the process to make the drug. And it was our job and work in the plant and scale it up. And that was very interesting. I liked it, but I just really wanted to do discovery, what people call discovery. Which is really not discovery. It's you know the drugs that you discover are not there already. It should be invention because you invent a drug from scratch.
0: So not not so much looking screening natural products. You wanted to develop a hypothetical structure.
1: Yeah, I mean there's to... there's several ways you can do drug discovery, but um, it's not really aimed at natural products anymore, and the field has evolved, mm-hmm. and it's. At that time, it was evolving into a synthetic field. You make drugs synthetically. Uh, right. You design a drug from scratch. Uh, you optimize it. You optimize the structure, and then you, know, you, you do the biological
0: testing. So for, for viewers who have no idea, or sorry, listeners, I guess, uh, who have no idea what that means, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. What does it mean to synthesize a drug, and what does it mean when a drug is effective? What is it that makes a drug effective?
1: Well, you know, you can go back to the ancient times, and people use nature for uh, the healing power of nature, right. which is not a dead field anymore. Not mainstream, but it's not dead field. Nature contains a lot of interesting products, and plants and animals don't make chemicals for nothing. They have biological activity. If they devote hundreds of enzymes to making these things like alkaloids, terpenes, right. they have biological functions. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, people use. Yeah, doctors used nature as a source of healing power until the basically the 19th century when mm-hmm. people started extracting the active principles right. from nature. So, for example, opium as morphine, and morphine was isolated in the 19th century, and it was marketed as, uh, you know, as a um, whatever drug. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, and, so, so, so that was the beginning of, of yeah. the pharma industry.
0: The understanding that that, it, uh, well, uh, that an herb is not has medicinal properties because of an active ingredient, not because the leaf itself uh, is bestowed with some magical properties of yeah, a mean, molecule in there.
1: Things can be complicated because, for example, there's some uh, extracts that are active because they have multiple components, and if you only pick one, you don't get the same response. There are also natural sources. I worked on, on an anti-cancer drug called Taxol, Which, you know, if you take the extract of the bark of the yew tree, it contains a lot of taxa, you die because there are a lot of other things in there. They're called taxinines and it's a lethal bark. So you have to get that particular drug out of it to make it effective. Mm -hmm. So you cannot have just the undigested, unprocessed uh, structure. Other cases, like the the bark of the cinchona tree, that contains quinine, that could be extracted. It was much more effective to actually by itself take queen and then chew the bark you know right for, for days so it, it was really uh, the way to um to discover drug in those days then people started realizing that the structure itself is may not be optimal because nature can't do everything
0: it's just it gets it gets a decent fit and whatever right. works nature is blind right for so.
1: example penicillins are made by molds to kill bacteria and they kill bacteria but if you modify penicillin, taking away a side chain, putting another side chain, designed by chemists, then mm-hmm. becomes much more potent. Right. Cephalosporins are the same. There's two side chains, and you can clip them off. Cephalosporin C is not very active, but if you clip off the side chain, replace them, and you get a super potent antibiotic. Some semi-synthetic, uh,
0: so, semi-synthetic work became. So we're we're talking about like kind of late nineteenth, early twentieth century. We we started kind of modifying existing natural structures.
1: Yeah, and it's still you know, still a field that's uh, reasonably uh, important to now. And, mm-hmm. uh, around the 80s, when I started my career, uh, it became fashionable to do screen, random screen. So you'd have hundreds of thousands of molecules and you do a biological screen and f- try to find if one of them somehow is your target. Mm-hmm. This has been automated. It's called ultra-high throughput screening. You can screen a million molecules in a week.
0: And so the, the target is, is an enzyme that you're trying to inhibit? Or? For
1: example, a receptor could be anything that's isolated that you can test in vitro. Right. So you have a high-throughput high throughput assay mm-hmm. that gives you yes or no answers.
0: And you get mm-hmm. binding affinities, right, the molecules? You
1: get qualitative answers okay. usually. Binding and yes or no. Yeah. So you know if you get 100 hits, these are called hits, the ones that give you the response you want. Then if you, you get a hundred is a good is a good result because right. you can screen them at a higher level mm-hmm. and then narrow it down to a few. If you get a million hits, then you really don't have anything
0: It's too vague
1: if you get um zero hits, of course you're in trouble, but typically you get dozens of hits and then you take a structure that you want to optimize. And you start decorating the structure, changing some mm-hmm. functions and molecules, atoms in the molecule.
0: Now what what guides that? Are you just stabbing in the dark, or are you saying do you do you have an idea of how this is fitting in the active site of this protein? And then you say, well, there's a little extra room over here. If we add a hydroxyl group, there might be more binding, or something like that. Or how does that work?
1: Yeah, the the pure random screening is only the first step. Then once you have something. Typically, you have information about your target. You have molecular structures. You have X-ray. You have modeling. So you have computer models, and at that point, you can start interacting with your model uh, and uh, seeing where the modification is possible, what might give you extra binding. And it's usually it's a highly successful process. Typically, in six months, you have a perfect inhibitor, uh, whatever you want to. You, know, you you have a good potentially drug in mm-hmm. vitro. Mm-hmm. And the next step, of course, is to see whether it works in vivo. And that's really, it's a lot of work. I mean, it may not work because it's toxic. It hits other target because it's excreted too quickly or it's metabolized. Right. And it's excreted after metabolism or it's activated and made toxic by metabolism. There's a lot physiological of
0: physiological yeah. factors that maybe are not immediately apparent when you're just looking at a molecular That's, structure, and then
1: it falls off pretty. It, the worst situation is when your target is the wrong target. So the biologists picked the target that actually doesn't address the disease, although it's validated.
0: Oh, I see. Biologically,
1: so, it turns out that it doesn't really address the disease. Right, uh, and that could happen.
0: So it was a wild goose chase. You 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 inhibit an enzyme magnificently, and yet the disease persists.
1: Right, and that could happen a lot. And mm-hmm. so, and that that's the worst because you have to go into the late development, like phase two, phase three, to see that there's no efficacy in people. Although it's the drug is absorbed, it gets in the blood, it gets to the target, binds the target, but yeah. it, the mechanism isn't enough to kill the disease.
0: And those are the situations where ten billion dollars is just down the tubes. No,
1: no, ten, not ten billion, but you can easily invest two hundred million in a wrong sure. target. Yeah before you realize that and that's why the cost of developing new drugs is so high because ninety percent of the ones that we start developing in humans fail so ninety percent so you figure that
0: you have to uh, recoup that you know the profit margin has to reflect the risk higher risk so this is the kind of stuff you're describing that's what you eventually got into right? but at first you were doing so you're at you're at bristol myers and and you're doing process development at first right so so There's, uh, there's a drug, they've, they've identified that it is going to work, it's going to work well, and they have some synthetic pathway, and you're there to say, what if we do this step a little differently, or what if we do this alternate, uh, you're, you're, you're there to optimize the synthetic pathway?
1: Yeah, I mean, I did really some innovative chemistry they asked me to do. Introduce some side chains, it was really a lot of fun, and uh, I had nothing to complain about. It was a great time. I learned a lot, and I put in place some new chemistry mm-hmm. for those days. There, the yeah, I was every cu- day. Just yeah, I was just curious about discovery and you know, mm-hmm. what is discovery like. What would it like? You know, why don't we get more drugs to develop? We just. It was mm-hmm. to me, it wasn't clear why we weren't discovering more drugs, and I wanted to do it myself. So, you know, for five years I did that, and I understood why it's a damn difficult business.
0: So, you were doing that. So, wait, at Bristol Myers, you're doing process development. And then, is this a situation where you're being promoted, and then you have more flexibility to choose your own projects, or how what was happening?
1: No, I simply applied for a job in discovery, and I got it. Within uh, yeah. Bristol-Mars? Yeah, within okay. the company. Yeah, you know, it's a different site. I was in Connecticut, but basically uh, it's drug discovery in oncology. right? So we had to discover new ways of treating tumors, and I started out with um, targeting drugs to tumors using antibodies. That was an interesting okay. field. This uh, I'm
0: very interested about. So, so you're saying... So, when I know very little about the immune system, but when you're talking about an antibody, so you're you're trying to figure out ways to allow immune cells to recognize tumor cells and and target them for destruction. Or? Well,
1: it was not that sophisticated. So the you know most anti-cancer drugs are very toxic, mm-hmm. and the problem is they kill cells, and, right. and they tend to kill more. Uh, high, you know quickly replicating cells like cancer cells but they also kill normal cells normal somatic cells so the idea that was developed in the 60s and 70s is what if we could target this deadly toxin but only deliver it to a cancer cell instead of normal cells Mm
0: And now so how people, do you do that? Yeah, people how started, how does it how does it recognize a cancer cell?
1: Right. So it turns out the cancer cells have some particular epitopes, which is molecular motifs that are unique to them on the surface of the cell. And normal cells don't have them. So if you develop an antibody to those and you link chemically a right. molecule to that antibody, you can deliver it selectively. So that was an idea that really never panned out very well for us. And now there's probably two or three products on the market that Use that principle, but you know, It but was it do, was probably too early to.
0: Do all cancer cells have you have have unique surface proteins? Is that necessarily true? Or
1: well, I don't know if all of them do. Actually, you know, the antibody came to us from mm-hmm. biology uh, department, and we linked some cancer cells, and you know, we could dissolve tumors on the back of a mouse, pretty impressively. But you know, that's a crude kind of crude model. So. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I did that for a while. Then there was a merger with Squib, and then there was a re-examination of all the programs. And I worked on some natural products. I was talking about Taxol. So we were making analogs of Taxol to see whether we could improve mm-hmm. the biological activity. Yeah, I
0: vaguely activity. remember as a kid, you kind of walked in the office many, many days, many weeks, many months writing something on something called Taxol. And I was like, I have no idea what dad's doing, but it's Taxol. I don't know. <laughs> a, uh, give me some, some closure here. <laughs> what was all this Taxol business?
1: Well, you know, it was a very exciting time, but I also realized all of a sudden that yeah, I kind of knew the reason why people were not putting more drugs on the market. It's pretty damn difficult. And uh, thinking back about my days in development, it was great to work on molecules that went on went onto the market. And mm-hmm. I wasn't gonna get that privilege working in discovery. I, I realized that mm-hmm. nothing came out of taxol, just taxol itself. So, well,
0: okay. what what was taxol and what did it do?
1: Uh, it's an anti-cancer drug that uh, basically inhibits mitosis and it does so more in cancer cells which divide rapidly so the cell uh, slows down and its development gets blocked in a certain phase mm-hmm. and so it slows down uh, slows down development uh, replication of cancer cells so, in so the end
0: it slows tumor growth but doesn't it doesn't really stop it. kill
1: it and eventually people, develop, buys resistance. You some time. Oh, people okay. develop resistance people develop resistance to mm-hmm. that and uh, but, you know, sometimes it gave you one, two years of extra life, which is, in those days was really uh, important mm-hmm. uh, for breast cancer, certain cancers. And so, you know, I, the company came by and uh, beringer ringelheim a German company, offered me a job, um, actually uh, eventually led to running a department of process development, which I th- mm-hmm. thought it was exciting because my... Interest was always organic chemistry. So mm-hmm. making molecules, not so much discovering drugs, but making so, molecules effectively and that's what I mm-hmm. ended up doing for so the you, rest of my career. So you
0: started out with process development, then you kind of flirted with drug development for a time.
1: Just to know what it
0: was like. Just to know you what know it was like. And then you kinda of returned to process development. You're like, This yeah. is this is what I'm good at and Which is
1: really what my yeah. my uh, your specialty field is and what I like to do. I mean Yeah. I thought it was, after that, I never strayed from it, and I did some management, but Mm -hmm. always in the same
0: field. So they kind of, Berger Ingelheim kind of poached you, or they just knew who you were, and they said, hey, why don't you come work for us, or?
1: Yeah, it happens a lot in the industry, so once you become a little bit known, and uh, uh, people are looking for, uh, you know, senior scientists, people with experience, and, Mm -hmm. and, well, it's a little complicated, but yeah, I mean, it happens a lot. Mm -hmm. You get offers, and sometimes you say no, sometimes you look into that, and.
0: Say, hey, this is pretty sweet turns out You know,
1: it turns out it was in Connecticut, so I didn't have to move, and uh, you know, it seemed like a good. And it was a great company. Well, we moved to, to
0: from West Hartford to Wilton, right?
1: Eventually, yes. <laughs> that's yeah. how but I commuted uh, for about four years. Yikes,
0: that's a pretty Maybe long was, drive, I think. right? But you know, it was
1: okay. I had energy. Mm-hmm. I was young.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're now you're at Barringerholm, and you're doing uh, you're doing you're doing process development. Uh, what what has changed in a, this is this is the '90s, right? Yep. So there's a little more, maybe it's a little more advanced of a field, or what's different now?
1: Well, you know, Beringer was a different company. It was, it was a little more modern in the approach. It was high throughput screening. It was very highly developed with innovative biology. It was a very good company for biology. So we had some really attractive targets, some really new stuff that nobody had. Uh, The company didn't have as much experience putting stuff on the market, but uh, as far as uh, science, science was tops. So we got some really interesting molecules, and uh, we're working on a number of diseases, mostly autoimmune diseases or immune, immunology and uh, virology. So we had some drugs against AIDS and drugs against hepatitis C. That was one of the most interesting uh, Mm -hmm. things I ever did. And, you know, they were very complicated drugs with... um, you know, every synthesis is a number of steps. You have to put these atoms together and you do it stepwise. You can't make a molecule from carbon, ox- uh, hydrogen, and oxygen.
0: Yeah, you can't just so, take some tweezers and, and uh, put everything put them in, in place. Yeah. So
1: you do steps using chemistry that basically is known, more or less. Mm-hmm. So some of, the average drug has 10 steps, 10 to 12. These are 26, 28 steps. And, you know, so it was a lot of big challenge for us still. To actually do it, uh, there was some pressure not to develop these drugs. And I said, no, I mean, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. This is great.
0: Yeah, and so. can you? were you able to reduce the number of steps or just increase the yield? Yeah, yeah
1: well, so we did some really uh, clever stuff. Got some publication. Eventually, none of these drugs went to the market. And that was <laughs> the frustrating thing. 13 years and nothing. Uh, when on well, the market, we were doing very innovative uh, science. Just
0: and, a playground for you to develop new techniques that were applicable in the field of organic chemistry, but just did, didn't do anything. Uh,
1: no. So, favorable. you know, it's actually typical if you work on early compounds, right? So, you know, when I'm BMS, I worked on late compounds where penicillin, cephalosporins, they were a done deal. I mean, the cephalosporin, right. easy to make and put on the market. But these are totally new therapeutic targets, and some of them didn't work out, and... Uh, uh, some were just, uh, for some reason, toxicology or wrong target. Or a target that wasn't effective didn't mm-hmm. quite make it. So you know, it was a lot of fun in terms of chemistry. And uh, you know, I spent some time in Germany as well, you know, about seven, seven, eight months in Germany to see what... You know, so Germany was focusing on late development and launch. You know, The drugs were manufactured in Germany. Mm-hmm. In the U.S. we did the early developments and transferred them uh, after a while. So I wanted to see what it was like to work. In a production environment or a late development environment.
0: So that's where you started to see the large-scale synthetic processes. Well, yeah,
1: I mean that uh, in Connecticut we were scaling up to 100 gallons, so we could make you know 50 kilos. But uh, if you wanted to make a ton, then you had to do it in Germany, and that was the launch. They had a big plant where they launched all the new compounds. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what, what so was it was like we- the first time you saw this? enormous machinery what does it look like and did it
1: well it's not that i hadn't seen um, machines before large reactors but this is a new plant highly automated so it's really top-notch uh, state-of-the-art production plant it was uh, quite impressive and mm-hmm. i think it's important for a chemist to spend some time there mm-hmm. to see how you scale up reactions, which is not at all like you do it in the lab it's not just bigger stuff is uh, you know engineering is very different so after that you begin to think about how you develop your processes in a more proactive way so that they will fit in the plant better
0: right yeah. so so what you're 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 thinking of ways to innovate and and you're thinking not just about the chemistry on the molecular level but you're also thinking about how how this works in an industrial context right you need to know when I, when I do this step this is what actually physically is happening
1: well, you know, they teach you from the very beginning that time is money, that you shouldn't have a reaction that lasts 24 hours. It should be shorter. Uh, so, you yeah, all these things, you know, theoretical. But when you actually see your chemistry in the plant, you get a visual uh, example of oh, right. what's wrong with, you know, if you do an extraction and it takes 24 hours, you know that there's something wrong. I mean, you know, you don't have a good uh, protocol. Yeah. If you do distillation and you figure out in the lab takes an hour and the plant takes three days, well, you know I shouldn't distill so much. I shouldn't have used so much salt. So mm-hmm. this is a—it's mm-hmm. a very interesting. You know, the first time I was totally amazed how long it takes to run a reaction in the plant.
0: You know? Right. So was there a moment where you where you got to see like you innovated a process and then you got to kind of like see it carried out in that large scale? Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. We, all the time, the first two or three batches, mm-hmm. we went there to watch them, and if it was my personal and chemistry, and, yeah, uh, I would be there the whole time, back and forth, and even helping with the analysis. Now, when I became department head, of course, I didn't really go because I had too much to do, but uh, right. know, when I started out at the bench, I was sent to the plant all the time to to watch this.
0: Victoria, activities. make sure that this works. <laughs> Well,
1: yeah. If it failed, uh, <laughs> yeah, you have out. to see
0: why, so that you know why, where it went wrong. So, is there is there a tremendous sense of pride when uh, everything just kind of goes nice and clean? You get a high yield and and everything worked out.
1: Well, to me, uh, the, the moment was in the lab when you when you got a reaction in the lab that works ninety percent yield, no impurities. You know, it. you're gonna get you're gonna get it to work in the plant. Mm-hmm. So it just sometimes it requires a little more time because uh, you know. A lot of factors are there, but you know Mm -hmm. that once you get all the factors pinned down, it's going to work. So to me, the eureka moment was in the lab. Okay. But it's also a proud, you know, it's also, of course, a source of pride when you've done a campaign, three lots, and you've made uh, the same yield, the same purity Mm -hmm. each time very consistently. So it's also uh, gratifying. It is not a given, but, you know, given enough time, I know that I can always get things to go work in the plant.
0: Mm Hmm. So, what are what are one or two of your proudest uh, achievements at at
1: Well, you know, it's there's a lot of things. uh, You know, we developed. uh, I mean, the the uh, Canadian branch discovered a drug against hepatitis C, which was a microcycle that involved uh, f- making a 15 member ring through a ring closing olefin metathesis which was 15, 15 wow that's pretty 15 big. membered and you know when you make a, a ring that's so large the reaction tend the molecule tend to react with each other not with it with themselves so you get polymers instead of a, a large ring so mm-hmm. Which so is
0: usually area. the opposite. Usually intramolecular is so much faster. but Only for small rings. Only for small rings. These, for small it's, uh, the ends of the <laughs> chain the are ends, so
1: far away. If, if the member don't meet very, very easily often, because they're yeah. so far away. Mm-hmm. So if you concentrate these, they polymerize. So it has to be run at high dilution, which means you need millions loop. of gallons of solvent to make uh, the 100 tons that we thought we needed. and So we figured a way to do it concentrated. I at a... A great scientist, Chu Tian Shu, and uh, he figured a way. You know, we worked together, and he actually came up with the idea, and it worked.
0: To prevent polymerization? Uh, yeah, to How run this 20
1: times more concentrated than it was.
0: So it, you it, save a lot of money on solvent, basically.
1: Yeah, it was a, what we call nonlinear solution. You know, We have a lot of tricks to make things work, and uh, your typical trick is to add slowly one of the reagents and uh, to the catalyst. And so that the concentration at any given time of the starting material is low. But this didn't work because it was a thermodynamic. So the equilibrium was reached. So in the end, it didn't matter what whether you had it slowly or quickly. So we had to come up with something else. And he had an idea that turned out to be probably wrong, but the thing worked. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and sometimes you have to try crazy things to solve problems that are, you know, I hadn't even told him that we had 25 people on this molecule for years and nobody could figure out it. He just came out of school and did it. You know.
0: He was fresh out of grad school. Or? Yeah, it
1: was fresh out of postdoc. Wow. At Yale, and yeah, uh, uh, you know, I just went to the conference. He came back, said, oh, "I solved the problem," and I said, oh, "You're gonna be kidding me." <laughs> <Are you> kidding? <laughs> so yeah, he had solved the problem, and we figured out probably why it worked, mm-hmm. and you know, introduced a new principle. And the molecule didn't make it, unfortunately. Once we got the cost within target, which nobody thought we could do it, uh, you know, it actually failed because of toxicology, and mm. uh, there were some other molecules to follow up, but that was exciting because we solved a problem that... Uh,
0: right, outside of the context of drug development, it's just an interesting challenge in organic chemistry. How do you get this molecule to do this thing that you want it to do? That it's, uh, Exactly,
1: that's yeah. what I really enjoy. I mean, I enjoy biology, but I'm not a biologist. You know, I'm a chemist, and I need to find innovative solutions to problems mm-hmm. that, uh, that are, kind of defy a, a a linear solution right a linear means you know process chemists have all these tools to do things like uh, you know for example uh, slow additions or uh, you know uh, flow chemistry uh, immobilizing catalysts i mean these are all things that you can try and in this case none of them applied so we mm-hmm. had to come up with something that nobody and in the end other molecules were made by other companies and none of them had that, that this methodology so Hmm. They eventually ended up copying it. It was actually kind of interesting that my new company, Janssen, uh, had a similar molecule. So they all play copycat with Berger and uh, they actually used our trick and made the molecule, put it on the market.
0: Mm-hmm. So was that? So, so you were at Beringer for a time, and then you you were recruited. Is this molecule, this methodology you're talking about, part of the reason you were? Or, no, or, or, no, no, How did actually, this I, Happen?
1: I did not work on this molecule directly. No, no. They said that they used our publications to uh, figure out right. how to make it, but I was not involved. It was, uh, which naturally, of interest, which I didn't want to be. Any involved.
0: good chemist is is lo- reading the literature what every day just to make yeah, sure, sure you're yeah. on I mean, top of. Yeah, uh,
1: basically, the Behringer design was copied by every company. Making large cycle became a big business, and uh, so you know, Behringer couldn't put it on the market for some reasons I don't know, toxicology. Whereas uh, Janssen put it on the market, and uh, it made actually uh, almost a billion in the first year, millions billions of sales, mm-hmm. and then you know it got basically taken out because of. Uh, There's some new therapies by Gilead, and they essentially cure the disease as a combination therapy, and anything else doesn't compete. Right, I had heard
0: that Hep C is basically now completely curable. Well,
1: it seems more or less curable. I mean, I'm not. This is not my area, but what you read is the sales are were fantastic. Now, as you cure a disease, you have fewer and fewer patients, but basically Mm -hmm. the sales were great, and I think a six-week course of therapy takes care of the disease, which is. It's a great accomplishment. If I think about at the beginning of my career, there was nothing against viruses. Yeah. I mean, absolutely look, zero. You curing, couldn't do anything
0: about it. curing any disease, regardless of the origin. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> pretty remarkable. Well,
1: you know, bacteria are actually pretty easy to kill because they're so different from from eukaryotic cells. Right, but so viruses normally, are not. They don't even have a membrane. They don't. They're not even living things, they're just molecules.
0: It's and just a protein coat and uh, some genetic material inside, right?
1: Yeah, but you know, we, the scientists, sequence all the enzymes, you know, identify them all, and they're, they're unique to viruses. And if you hit them mm-hmm. you know, with a triple therapy, uh, sometimes they can't mutate fast enough to, uh, to survive.
0: Triple therapy, so you got three targets at once.
1: Yeah, you typically have uh, You're you know, enzymes out. like reverse transcriptase, which doesn't exist in uh, humans. You have proteases, which exist, but they're very specific in mm-hmm. in, en- in mm-hmm. uh, viruses or DNA polymerases. So sometimes you hit DNA polymerase in two different sites, and uh, protease at one site, active site. And mm-hmm. uh, the enzyme usually mutates, but can mutate three proteins simultaneously Exactly
0: right this is necessary because if you target one thing then inevitably there's going to be mm-hmm. one virion that 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 evolves to uh to uh circumvent that that method and then now you've got another you've got a a new strain right so That's right that's right yeah If you do yeah. three at once how can nature possibly randomly evolve immu- you know, uh, immunity to all three of these things at once. That's
1: all I understand, although don't get me wrong, I'm not a virologist, right. so I'm just an organic chemist. And, uh,
0: but so I guess you're saying it was so much harder to, to do antivirals because, we, we, like the very earliest stuff, we, we had yeah. antibiotics before we even understood how the mechanism of action. Right? Yeah, now yeah, we know so. they're inhibiting uh, cell wall. Synthesis, is that right? peptidoglycan?
1: Uh, these are the penicillins and cephalosporins. Right. Yeah.
0: So it's just that the outer layer of the bacterium is made of a thing that is completely different than the cells that we have, and so, so you just make a drug that can't make that thing, and then the bacteria all die.
1: It's a little bit uh, easier. I wouldn't say mm-hmm. easier, but it's a little bit easier than killing viruses or, or inhibiting viruses or curing autoimmune disease or cancer, which is uh, you know, Much are more not called more process. Pathogens yeah. are, called, are caused by other, other,
0: other you know, factors, means. yeah. So, so, so yeah, so now tell me, so you're at Beringer, and then now you're transitioning to another, uh, another job. What, what was that like?
1: Uh, well, I moved to Belgium, and I was looking for a job in Germany, but I couldn't find one, so uh, Belgium was actually pretty close, and, uh, it worked for Johnson and Johnson basically Johnson is the pharmaceutical arm and um, it was great uh, I did exactly what I wanted to do I mean more process development except that this time the things that I worked on went to the market some of them because I was working on phase 3 compounds so the things that were uh, done deal and I had to, in one case I had to redevelop a commercial process which was too expensive and so we were able to reduce the cost by 50% that was it's a diabetes drug, and that was really exciting uh, because we had to develop some new chemistry that didn't exist, and no company had it and
0: cutting it, cutting the cost in half that's not so bad right
1: no they, they're still right, not yeah. happy because you know they mm-hmm. they wanted more, but you know it's just not that easy and if I told you the price per kilo, you'd laugh right. So you know, it's not that easy to reduce the price to nothing. It was a molecule with uh, you know molecular weight five hundred, you know, with uh, dozens of atoms and mm-hmm. five stereogenic centers. You don't really reduce the uh, that's tough the price yeah. that easily. But I mean, you know, we had uh, developed a direct coupling which we published, and so yeah. that was uh, exciting. So and we we got it on in the plant and validated, filed to the, uh, you know, the FDA and uh, EMA.
0: So what are you doing? You're obviously you're not at the bench. You're you've got your office and you've got your big whiteboard and you've got your computer. And you, what are you doing? You're sitting there and you're plotting mm-hmm. and you're scheming. And then you've got a team of how many people? And what, what 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 were you doing?
1: Well, typically when you're a little bit senior, you don't work in the lab and you run projects. I've run departments as well, uh, on and off. But I really don't like managing department because it takes you away from the science. So I've done mostly. Uh, most companies like Beringer and Janssen and probably BMS now, but I don't know. Uh, they have two careers. You can be a manager or you're an administrator, basically. You, you have a flexibility as to how you want to run the department, but you, know, you have to take care of administration a lot, budgets mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. But you have uh, to understand. You have uh, to
0: be a chemist, though, right, still? Well, yeah, or?
1: I think you have to be a chemist or an engineer. You have to be technical, but right. you don't have to be the best scientist in your department yeah. because you have two ladders and you can have, uh, I was senior director at Janssen and the scientific ladder means you run projects and not people. Mm-hmm. And so nobody reported to me. You know they were giving me a team every time. Uh, say you have to do this project, you get five people in house. You can get uh, at a CRO, a contract research organization, other people, and and your job is to develop this process. And, mm-hmm. uh, so that it's really enjoyable, and I enjoyed it. And uh, it's not that I wanna, don't want to supervise people, but the, it is a very time consuming activity which to me wasn't that interesting you know uh, so the yeah. manage them scientifically it's fun because you meet you know two or three times a week sometimes every day mm-hmm. talk about what has to be done you know this great job you did this well, fantastic i think i can motivate people that way uh, by doing great science but i, I don't really want to get into promotions and distributing bonuses. Right, and right, and right. telling yeah. them why didn't get the bonus. I mean it's just not that
0: you just want a team. You team. want to say, look, this is my idea. You try this, you try this. Did it work? Okay, great. If well, it didn't work, you know, let's if you have gonna...
1: any ideas of yourself, then right, mean, this, sure, it doesn't have you. to be my idea. Yeah. But indeed a lot of times it isn't my idea that works. But mm-hmm. nevertheless had I to provide the focus and and so the you know, that it's sort of a project leader but from a scientific standpoint. And I developed several processes and uh, a lot of times you work externally i've worked in you know in india and china with uh, uh, sometimes the drugs that you make cannot be made in-house i developed a cephalosporin that we didn't have a plan to make cephalosporin they require mm-hmm. a specific uh, uh, environment mm-hmm. controlled environment so we we're going to launch it in india but it didn't work out but anyway it, you know sometimes it's in-house of course i prefer to work in-house but so it's a coordination so you have several teams and uh so it's enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it's just basically you have to think about chemistry, how to make chemistry work, what you want to do right. effectively, cheaply, environmentally sound, you know, green chemistry.
0: Living in the world of molecules.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh, basically that's what I know how to. That's the only thing I know how to do. And I, in my opinion, uh, from my taste, if you stay long enough in a field, you become really good at it. I just don't like to be an amateur. And, mm-hmm. uh, fields that are not my fields some people you know the nice thing about the industry it gives you the possibility of becoming a generalist you can actually branch out into regulatory affairs you know you deal with the uh, authorities uh, to approve a drug you can get into quality control you can get into marketing you can get into purchasing i mean you know sciences can do a lot of things mm-hmm. there's that a lot are of overlap general. with general they're not very technical but they also require some technical knowledge i'd never wanted to do these things but mm-hmm. a lot of other people do them and they're happy so
0: yeah, yeah respect that yeah, I think I would be one that's going more in, a, in, uh, in that route, I think, than, than sticking to the science. Um, so, how long were you there, and, uh, and and what are you doing now?
1: So, I was there 12 years, and then at one point, I kind of decided I was going to be on my own, which is what you do, but i never done it, and uh, I'm a consultant and uh, also teach, I always wanted to teach. Well, I wanted to be a professor, to be honest, at the beginning, but um, I decided since I had some kids to support, I needed a a job that paid well enough, (laughs) and I didn't want to be in the academic world. And so, you know, um, now teaching, as I teach in Italy, I have a lot of activities, and it's interesting, but, I don't know if I see myself uh, a classroom teacher as a classroom teacher. Consulting is, of course, interesting and gets me into another into another field. For example, consulting with generic companies, and I see what they go through. You know, I worked always in large pharma, where you know I always made new drugs, and the new drugs are new. You don't have to worry about patents too much. And there, it's a nightmare because you have to have uh, you have to make drugs that are already approved. But you're competing on the basic basis of price, of the cost. Right. Not on the basis of a patent that gives you the exclusive rights.
0: Right. So you're making a drug that... They, they are making a drug that exists already, works just great, and you just want to make it yourself for cheaper and sell it for cheaper.
1: Yeah. When a patent expires 20 years after filing, then anybody can market that drug. And since the synthesis is published, uh, at least in the patent, you can make it. The problem is that everybody... Uh, can can do it, it, especially if it's an important drug. So So you really have to have good chemistry in place.
0: Basically, you you want to innovate the the pathway. Innovate the chemistry
1: and not the biology. Biology is already known. So these companies only do chemistry, and Mm -hmm. they got to do it well. Mm-hmm. it's very
0: interesting so they so, yeah. call you up and they say hey we'll pay you some money come over mm-hmm. here and uh, help us <laughs> make this uh, yeah
1: I, mean, I give better. advice You know, of course these are drugs that I never worked on before so I don't know anything about mm-hmm. them but you know but you look at
0: guide. the pathway you see it's this many steps and this is the chemistry that's going on I know a way to uh, do you know do this step a little cheaper a little right, faster right
1: try this chemistry I give yeah. them papers and uh, I try to help them identify impurities usually what happens is that they change the chemistry, they get different impurities. And mm-hmm. uh, The drug has been filed with specifications, right? So the drug typically has to be 99% pure. There can't be more than 0.1% of this impurity. If you change the your chemistry, you're going to get different impurities. And if an impurity is over 0.05% 0, 0, and it's new, you have to worry about it.
0: Right, because it could potentially be harmful.
1: Right, and you don't want to redo really the clinical studies. So you have to meet the specifications that were filed by the innovator, and we change the chemistry but we need to deliver the drug and you don't want to crystallize it 20 times because the cost goes up Mm -hmm. so it's really a new for me new perspective on pharma you know it's uh it, I find it interesting. So, What's well, pure so, chemistry? It's pure so. chemistry. Pure that's,
0: chemistry. That's right up your alley.
1: And impurity profiles is uh, great.
0: So you mainly get consultation through these generics, or you you are also helping with uh, process development of brand new drugs. Or what are you doing? What else? I'm
1: I'm just starting out now, uh-huh. so you know, I, I work I, you know, mostly with generic companies, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of open to new business and try new things. You know, I've done my shtick for about 30 years and <laughs> I just don't mind trying new things, new markets and yeah, sure, I'm kind of open to yeah, we'll see where this branches. is. You heard it
0: here first, if any pharma bigwigs are listening, hire my dad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, well, you know, there's a new uh, area that I never worked on it's contract research organizations which I always work with, you know, outsourcing some of our work. Uh, mostly because it's cheaper but also because it's more flexible. Now if you if you hire 10 people to do a project and the project fails, you don't want to fire 10 people. But you can tell the CRO, contract research, look, we don't need you anymore. So that's why pharma goes into that direction. So that's really a difficult, challenging job. And I wouldn't mind working with them, helping them out. Uh, I know how what big pharma wants from them. And So this is something I haven't done yet, and I think yeah. it would be a
0: challenge. At this point, you've worked for a number of large companies and and you have a solid perspective on a wide variety of of the goings-on of such a company right so yeah this is invaluable knowledge
1: i know it's a tricky job because you know if you work on contract you have big pharma as a customer and people like me who are very demanding and very micromanaging we want we know exactly what we want from them Mm -hmm. and you also have some small companies biotech that I had no idea what to do process. I mean, they just really rely on the CRO 100%. They tell them, look, you know, we need to put this in phase one. Uh, what do we need? And they have to step up and have a strategy, which of course I know how to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, CROs may not actually know what, what to do and, or may have different strategies. So it's actually, you have to be very flexible to work with very demanding clients like me. Or sometimes with this mobile tech that's, oh, look, you know, we just need a kilo to do a phase one. I don't know. Right. You guys make sure it's GMP. And they don't know what GMP is. And, uh, what is you know, GMP? It's a good manufacturing practices. Anything uh, going to the clinics mm-hmm. uh, to be used on humans is to be made by good manufacturing practices, which is a set of regulations that you have what to What would be, be an familiar.
0: example of something that violates GMP? oh just there's a. you
1: need a good auditor to look at your facility i mean there are millions of things that can be wrong you know, small details you, you inject a standard and you have a method i've seen that happen a method that says inject for 30 minutes and people stop the injection after 20 because nothing's coming out of the hplc <laughs> it's a violation it's a very simple mm-hmm. stupid thing that you can do and uh, you know, if you look at the warehouse, ra- different raw materials should be stored on different pallets. If you have two, same, two different chemicals on the same pallet, it's a violation of JMP. Uh, the most important thing is the, f- is the manufacturing instructions. Mm-hmm. They have to be specific. They have to be uh, uh, executed uh, perfectly, and they have to be validated by second uh, operators. Okay, yeah. Everything has to be written down, what was done, weighed out. Anyway, it's a series of
0: the of, ultimate uh, recipe, with zero room for error. It's not like when I cook and I go, uh, yeah, that looks done. Or, <laughs> it's, uh, well, how much? Uh, I'll put about this much. Let's
1: say that you're doing a reaction that takes an hour, but it isn't done, right? Mm-hmm. And you decide to let it go for another hour, mm-hmm. and then it isn't done either. And then you add a little bit of stuff to that to make it go. I mean, that's not GMP. That's crap, right? So you right. you have to make sure that. The batch records where everything is recorded doesn't really have too many of these deviations. Right. Some are allowed. Got to go the same general, way every time. You cannot just improvise in a, right. in a
0: manufacturing. Yeah, you can't improvise when 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 one batch costs a million dollars.
1: Yeah, that's one right. reason, and the other reason is the the patient is not well served by things that are improvised. Right. And so it we uh, have to have your process under control mm-hmm. before you go into the plant. And that doesn't always happen because you're under pressure to make the material right. So, there are two challenges basically for us: is to deliver at the right cost, but also to deliver material during the clinical studies. And that has a timeline, right? If they're going to start a study in two months, you just don't have time to do to make the chemistry very pretty. So you have to mm-hmm. really be clever and find a robust synthesis to mm-hmm. scale up. Sometimes you have to improvise a little bit. It's not that these are bad chemists; they're under pressure right to deliver and you don't want to delay clinical study you
0: got to get it done yeah yeah. okay so your life has been about drugs and process development making drugs all this stuff I'm curious what what do you think that people think you do
1: to be honest, I have no idea because <laughs> I don't talk to people outside my field. You just,
0: you're just you a hermit in the science world. You never talk to somebody that, uh, well, maybe maybe a lot of people don't really want to ask you questions. or Oh, Vittorio is a chemist. All right, I don't care. I'm not going to talk about that at all. But yeah, I, I, I find it very interesting. I, I, I'm fascinated by the public the public's perception of science in general, but in particular, drugs, and pharma, and all of this kind of thing, and I, I, I just, I'm always fascinated to read the things they say, and hear the things they say, and they're always different, and they're always, you know, to varying degrees of uh, informed uh, stances. I mean, do you ever encounter People that have an opinion on what you do, uh, or
1: well, to be honest, most of the people ask me, What do you do? and as soon as I say uh, process development in the pharma industry, the eyes go blank, and then you know, next question, Where did you go on vacation? Right, <laughs> exactly. Topic, yeah. right? So it's because not... you don't know what to ask because it's such an esoteric area. But some ever, you know, some actually become critical of the pharma industry and start, you know. They come up with the usual uh, accusations. You know, is it true that you guys are... Uh, you know, uh, it's a conspiracy against the patient. I heard that there's a drug against cancer. You guys are not telling us because right. otherwise you wouldn't make money with it. So, I mean, you get all this kind of
0: This crap. is, of course, what I, was, uh, yeah, what, what I was leading up to here. I said, so uh,
1: Usually, I'm not a very good advocate for scientists. I usually laugh and say, yeah, right. Sure, we have a cure for cancer and we keep it away because otherwise you wouldn't buy all this crap. That right.
0: That's exactly what the mocking tone that I would expect from somebody that's in on the conspiracy.
1: Well, I also read blogs of you know there's a lot of crap about the pharma industry. For example, the the cost of developing a drug has risen to 2.6 billion and nobody believes that. and there are even books that I've read. And it's amazing if people can write books without understanding the industry at all. Mm-hmm. For example, they forget to multiply for the uh, attrition factor which is means that nine out of ten drugs don't make it and you gotta pay for those Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: a successful drug doesn't cost 2.6 billion when you add
0: 26 billion all the
1: R&D R&D that is needed to bring a drug on the market if you believe Mm -hmm. the the report the financial reports of all the big pharma companies and you divide the R&D expenses by the number of drugs every year you come up with three billion I've done this exercise with three billion each Mm So the drug industry spends hundreds of billions in R and D, and every year they have thirty to forty new drugs. So this is uh, a reasonable number, and it's actually derived by the Tufts uh, Tufts University. There's a center for study of drug development there that they publish their data. There's a belief mm-hmm. that the pharma industry uh, pays for these. This is not true. This is eighty uh, percent federal funded, and the idea that these people would be in a conspiracy to. I mean, to cheat the public and tell them, give them some false numbers is so ridiculous that to me it doesn't really uh, merit any discussion.
0: What what fascinates me is the... they seem to think that pharma is a singular entity, you know what I mean? And if, if it were a singular entity and could operate in an authoritative manner, okay, we've got this cure and we're not gonna give it to you. But the the, the, the point is that this is all based on chemistry that is well understood all around the world. If anybody is, is about to cure something, somebody else is nipping at their heels and about to do the same thing, and all of these companies are in competition with one another, there's no really no basis to believe that 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 such a thing could be hidden from the world when you have all of these different people that are trying to become successful, you know, all of these, all of these different companies that are trying mm-hmm. to do something uh, that will be profitable, you know, such as curing a disease obviously would be, you know.
1: Well, there is, there is uh, you know, this is ridiculous, of course. These people write blogs and they don't understand what they're talking about, but there is some reasonable criticism that I hear from people who are much more informed and they say, for example, you know, why don't you guys work on this disease, which is an orphan disease. It's a disease with very few patients. Indeed, pharma wants to work on disease where they can make money. Mm-hmm. If there's a genetic disease that hits only 0.001% of the population, they're probably not going to work on that. And uh, right. you know, and that's a disgrace. Now, of course, governments have come up with special status for these diseases so you can get paid.
0: So there's an incentive? Uh, this is more of government. an
1: incentive, but this cannot be left to the industry. The industry is not going to spend $100 billion mm-hmm. for a research that doesn't well, pay.
0: So maybe maybe that those situations tend to halt, f- fall more into the hands of academia. Maybe academia sort of does some of the work and says, "Hey, we think that this is a a viable uh, avenue," and then pharma can kind of pick it up from there, where it's already halfway down the pipeline or something like that.
1: Well, it's a field of pharmacoeconomics, which is not my field, so you know, I, I speak as a, as a as an observer, but mm-hmm. I think there has to be societal uh, pressure and government intervention to address these diseases somebody's got to pay the bill yeah. so the industry pays the bills for all the drug discovery and uh, for you know mass produced drugs for these these are called orphan drugs and there's usually sometimes a special status where you can get tax benefits you can get extra funding mm-hmm. and so some drugs have been developed in these areas as well so mm-hmm. but you know certainly it's there's room for improvement I'm not saying that but you know some of the the accusations that you read are so laughable that. You know, you
0: know. Right. Yeah. Well, the first one is very laughable. Uh, what about accusations regarding uh, drug pricing on drugs that are still under patent? Like, uh, what? What? What about the Shkreli guy? This guy. What do you think of him? Which guy? Martin Shkreli. Oh, okay. This uh, everybody, the most hated guy in uh, in industry. Well, people. I don't really
1: want to talk about specific people. Okay, general, whatever. Just but, uh, but you know, pricing is is. As I said, when you have a new drug, um, you hire consultants to decide what the pricing will be. The pricing doesn't bear relationship with the cost of producing a drug. It, has, it depends on the benefit of the drug itself, right? So mm-hmm. it basically, you price a drug, knowing that you only have maybe eight, nine years of exclusivity, you try to recoup what you made. So sometimes prices are indeed outrageous, and uh, you, know, you can spend... I don't remember with the Hepatitis C, but you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars for one cycle of therapy. So somebody's gonna have to pay this and you have to convince the insurance companies to pay. It's a difficult field. I think that somebody who innovates so much, like Gilead in this case, deserves to be paid somehow, you know, whether the patients should pay or the insurance companies. But
0: Well they have to they have to recoup cost or there's no incentive to make drugs. They also have to make
1: money, they have to make profit because they have to pay employees and they have to look if if they didn't bet their money on these drugs then taxpayer would have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Or they wouldn't get discovered. Mm-hmm. So the question: Would people be happy to have higher taxes so that we have a, a drug for hepatitis C? They would say, "No, I'm not going to get hepatitis C. I right. clean, wash my hands. It's not my problem." And so, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think it would work well. But you know, whether it's excessive price, I can't really tell. I, I know that they're high and they, they look high, but you know, again, this is how uh, the you know the, the Capitalism works and you know should it be different in the pharma industry for drugs I don't know I mean you know, if if a company does not invest doesn't risk you know, remember that some of these things don't work in the end right and they lose money so if companies would not risk their money I don't know somebody else would have to pay for it and I don't think the taxpayer would want to fit the bill for all the crazy ideas and mm-hmm. they come to so, you know the government invests so you know there's a yeah, I don't know what to say about the price, but indeed, they're high. And, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. Well, some are and some aren't. I mean, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, new drugs that are really innovative are compete on don't have to compete with anything, right? So But I see there was very little. Now, if you have a new antibiotics and there's already hundred on the market, then you better have some. If you, it's just an average drug, you're going to have to pay. You're going to have to charge what the others charge.
0: Right. Otherwise, who's going to buy it? If you
1: get a tablet that says, okay, well, it's the same as the other, but it's once a day instead of twice a day, you're not going to get anybody to pay more for this, right? So Mm -hmm. you're going to have to compete on the same price. And they have an advantage of, you know, mm-hmm. dosage easier.
0: Dosage. What, what about some kind of criticism regarding uh, pharma getting involved in the medical field and, uh, you know, kickbacks to doctors and this kind of stuff? Is there, is there any merit with this, or what is that?
1: Well, you know, this is a difficult field, and it's marketing. Right? These are marketing practices. And mm-hmm. So I don't know whether companies are guilty of it, but they've been accused of... For example, encouraging off-label uh, prescription. So a doctor can take a drug that's approved for an indication and prescribe it for another. He can do that mm-hmm. without, that, without any, doing any clinical studies to see on a patient. Based on mechanism of action, it may work. For example, a drug that's been approved for schizophrenia, well, let's try it against depression. Depression is a big market. Mm-hmm. So let's try it against depression. So if a company encourages doctors to do this, it's not ethical as not legal mm-hmm. so companies have been accused of you know pushing doctors, giving them incentives to uh, to promote their drugs for off label indication uh, and which is you know companies have settled out of court some of them they paid billions of fines, but they I don't think they've been convicted of illegal right. activity whether they did that or not I don't know what is where is the uh, um, you know what is the limit of uh, what is legal? I don't know exactly what was done. Right. Uh, they may have exercised too much pressure on some doctors to do things sure. like that. And uh, so this is being cracked. There's been a crackdown against this. Most companies now have huge offices of what they call healthcare compliance, and they look into any thousand dollars being paid to any professional. They want to know exactly why you're doing this. So this has actually made our life yeah. very difficult. Because now we're going the other way, right? You cannot even invite a professor to give a lecture uh, for a thousand dollars about some chemistry that you're interested in without getting approval, without explaining why. Why this mm-hmm. guy? What is? What does he work? Mm-hmm. Send his CV. What are you going to talk about? Is a thousand dollars appropriate? Shouldn't it be nine ninety five? I mean, these kind of <laughs> things that uh, make my life right, uh, right made my life difficult. Which, but you know, I, in the end, you understand they're trying t- not well, to get caught again. You know. The,
0: yeah, I guess I guess in the end this may be the realm where these kinds of criticisms do hold some water and I guess the response is to up the regulation and I think I mean, there should be adequate regulation but I guess I see yeah that that can be frustrating on 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 that side as well but um yeah, I mean, it just goes down. I, th- th- this, is, this is the issue, and, and this is the main thing when I think about um, anti-science mentality, uh, anti-Western medicine mentality specifically. It all stems from a vague reaction to unethical practices within industry that just have absolutely nothing to do with science whatsoever. You know what I mean? If a pharma company uh, pays off some doctor's to, to prescribe their drug with a higher frequency, you know, what does this have to do with science? It has nothing to do with science at all. This is just, you know, if that is happening, which it may or may not, it, it, this, what, this has nothing to do with drug development or bioactivity of molecules, you know what I mean? And I think that we should be having that conversation, but I wish people would understand that, the degree to which that is absolutely unrelated to science. Well, you know, the, uh,
1: it's, this is marketing, right? When you have a good product, say you have a new computer or you have a new car, you're going to try to get as much out of it as you can, mm-hmm. and that's called marketing. Now, in the realm of pharma, uh, there has some more, uh, some stricter regulation. There's certain things you should not be doing; other things are allowed. Advertising to customer, and, but pressuring doctor to do uh, this, this prescription versus that for that disease is not legal so i cannot tell you exactly what marketing departments do uh, yeah. they've been accused of doing things illegally but to some extent you have to understand they're trying to get more out of it and a lot of the things that they do that you don't see is patenting different forms different salts right so trying to keep the drug going exclusively for a while because so, before generics yeah. jump in and just kill your wipe you out
0: so patent abuse is another uh, well not
1: abuses but you know you can Target. You can patent uh, very little things to prevent, or you can sue generic companies because they say they copy of your process, whatever. Mm-hmm. So they try with the uh, you know legal means to keep their exclusivity for a little longer, mm-hmm. because you have to understand twenty years is not a lot because you file it, a patent, and it takes you ten to twelve years to put the drug on the market. So when you reach the market, you're only going to have maybe eight years, ten years if you're lucky. And if you're making good money, you would like to keep that going for another year or two years, as long as you can. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of time, legal wars between uh, pharma mm-hmm. and generic. Sometimes they change a form. You know that a drug can have different forms. Switch the form, switch the salt, and claim some advantage. And that's something that the public doesn't really like because it doesn't give them anything. Right? If you make a new salt, let's say you market a drug as a hydrochloride, and then the patent expires, you come up with a fumarate, different salt. You claim as a slightly better bioavailability, and that's so. You're saying
0: like the, the, the drug itself is the, the same, same, but the there's same. a counter ion. There's a counter ion that's different that gives you perhaps better solubility, better absorption,
1: or something. Well, may, like maybe slightly better absorption, which is unlikely. And right. sometimes this is actually a trick that works.
0: But but wouldn't that be the case then that it is simply that salt that is patented, but now the process itself to develop the drug is no longer. Under
1: patent. Well, there's also process patents, right? So Mm -hmm. you can also keep the competition away by filing more patents on the process to make that drug later. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, changing the process a little bit so nobody can copy it. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to do. Uh, One of the most successful uh, strategies have been to market a racemate, right? When you when a molecule is chiral, uh, it's made of two racemates that are not superimposable. Right, right? Uh, two molecules there enantiomeric with each other, yeah. right? so Mirror they're not superimposable. So, in yeah. early on, people marketed racemates because they didn't know how to make single enantiomer drug. Now that single enantiomer drugs are easy to make, people have switched from racemate to single enantiomer. And and sometimes, mm-hmm. in the case of omeprazole, for example, they've gotten uh, long, you know, long, uh, longer exclusivity, uh, claiming that of course the single enantiomer is better than the racemate. Mm-hmm. which isn't always the case but a lot of time it is a case because you, your molecule is 100 percent active not just fifty percent right and, uh, so it's a three-dimensional
0: it molecule that fits into a three-dimensional active site of course one over the other is going to be so better. yeah
1: this is a, actually a good strategy but has driven some criticism because of uh, sometimes the the improvement is really really marginal mm-hmm. and of course the the cost is a, a lot higher mm-hmm it's not easy to make this molecule. Uh, well, it's easy, but it's not trivial.
0: But if but if the chiral, it, it, but, well, so you're saying the process, the, the, the stereospecific process is patented. Can't everybody still do the racemate?
1: Yeah, people can do the racemate. But if you convince the doctor that convince them that the single enantiomers has advantages, to some to some extent, the better biology. Then nobody's gonna prescribe. want. Would you want the inferior drug if you could right. get a better one? Of course, nobody wants.
0: So, a in a sense, the doctors are a little bit of the gatekeepers here in terms of determining the frequency of drug use.
1: Well, of course, they're the, the people who prescribe the drugs. Mm-hmm. I don't know well, how they get informed, uh, where they get the information, but. Right. Sometimes yeah, yeah. doctors are just wrong. Right? Well, the doctors, I don't know if they have a great decision making power because, they say, the FDA says that a certain enantiomer is better than the racemate. So instead of getting, mm. uh, well, it, it gets approved, the filing gets approved. So it means the FDA says, yes, there is something to it. That this drug is better as a single enantiomer than a mixture. Yeah. And and then the doctor says, okay, well, the FDA has approved it, I I will prescribe
0: it. So the danger is that that opens up suspicions of FDA kickbacks and stuff like that, right?
1: Yeah, which is ridiculous, of course. Uh, More than kickbacks, I think it's uh, maybe a favorable examination of the case, right? So Mm -hmm. you, you really have to read your metabolic data very carefully because what happens is the an that's not active of course has an effect on metabolism of the active drug and so they get cleared at different rates and actually there's difference between people you know drugs are metabolized it's a complex process so sometimes it's not that clear that there's an advantage to a single enantiomer sometimes right. it's really worse because the inactive enantiomer is doing something good but sometimes there's not much of a difference except the dose is higher mm-hmm uh, lower but other than that there doesn't seem to be a much of an advantage so the, the actual discussions are why did uh, if they approve this and you know uh, this is not my field I think that if you read the papers there's certainly a, a reason to do so but the question is is it major mm-hmm. is it a major reason to switch uh, you know this I cannot really answer yeah that. It's, uh, there's always discussions you know why should you pay 10 times more for it right, right. where the simple mixture was actually okay Uh, this is a it's a drug that acts against uh, the uh, well uh, basically reflux acid reflux Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really rocket science so it's uh a it worked quite yeah.
0: well. Yeah. Well, it's all very interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm learning a little bit here. I hope that, you know, listeners are learning about I mean, I want people to have a more sophisticated understanding of obviously chemistry in general, but in particular drug development. This is probably the third episode I've done on drug development and I just I'm fascinated by it and I want people to understand a little bit better about how this happens and, 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 and to be able to sort these things, you know, science is over here, industry is over here, and you know all of these practices and you know, all, the, all the layers, all the steps. So, yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot here. here. Uh, is there anything right now that you're really looking forward to?
1: In my career or in general as a well, societal? Well, let's
0: do so both. Societal. Let's do both. In your career and also that you think that we're really is right on the forefront of, for, for science, for medicine or for science in general.
1: Well, in my career, I think I've been very happy in my f- job and I would like to uh, to actually teach or at least lecture uh, clearly among scientists as to how to do what I did and how to be good at what you do. Is there a so lot share of course my knowledge. work in and process
0: development? Does that exist?
1: So we just created a master's program at the University of Milan and we're going to start teaching that. So there will be students spending a year learning this in the classroom, and then spending six months of, uh, for an internship. These are companies. PhD students? These are uh, people with a degree, at least a master's in chemistry, and they can uh, take this you know accelerated program with a lot of uh, 300 hours of lectures and uh, then some six months of internship. So this would be, in Italy, I think the first. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think in England there's one, uh, Leeds as a course like this. I don't so know exactly. It's pretty but, new. But it's pretty new, and it's due to the fact that Italy doesn't really have a lot of research. So most of the companies are generic companies. There's almost 100 of them that make generics. Mm-hmm. Actually, the number one providers for the U.S. market are the Italian companies. The active ingredient is made 50% of the time in Italy. Do you so teach in Italian? I teach in Italian. And, Is
0: that hard? Because yeah, or you've done all, all of your professional life has been in English or, or in German, I suppose. Right? Uh,
1: well, in German, not so much because. But I live Europe, in Germany, but I, yeah. Yeah, I don't use it for professionally because I don't have actually any contact so, with the German chemical industry.
0: Do you have to learn new Italian terminology? Yeah,
1: well, it's a, you know I learned chemistry in Italian, so I remember it. But uh, some of the newer terminology, indeed, that doesn't even have an Italian translation. So I mean. Mm-hmm. People, all my slides are in English, so people can see the original terminology, Mm -hmm. uh, but I teach in Italian. So, the idea is to share some of the knowledge I would like to contribute to uh, young people's careers, and, you know, basically, I'm also looking forward to learning new things. I mean, I was a little bit tired of the pharma industry, I have to say, 35 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's a great place to work, but some of the... uh, Dynamics wear you out a little bit. Some of these uh, bureaucratic things, uh, as I said, they're uh, you know needed, necessary, but they are also wear you out. Um, and you know, working with the generic industry has been refreshing and to see how little paperwork and how little uh, <laughs> yeah. red tape. All the regulations
0: have, uh, that have all been cleared. Yeah, you just got uh, well, to innovate that the chemistry. Yeah,
1: there's smaller organizations that they only have chemistry, so they don't mm-hmm. have to. Worry about this stuff. And in terms of societal, yeah, I mean, I like to see. I think we're going in the wrong direction. There's uh, too much belief in alternative medicine, which I don't want to discount, but sometimes I read that the pharma industry addresses the symptoms of a disease, and we need a more holistic approach.
0: Which could not be further from the truth. It is which the precisely is the, other the opposite. Way around. Yes. The
1: other way around. We work against biological targets that are invalidated, yeah. and so do very fundamental research
0: yes this uh, infuriates me specifically in talking to a lot of people when in reality alternative medicine is uh, largely a placebo effect that is treating the symptoms only and not, not the cause
1: well if you have a headache and you want the pain to go away indeed you take a painkiller that doesn't cure the origin of your disease but that's not the typical medicine uh, medicine against pain is important you know now there's a big crisis in the US Mm-hmm. But, you know, what would happen if industry didn't make this compound, morphine? You know, people would go crazy. They would have to undergo surgery without... Uh, without
0: uh, without you know, general, anesthetic. general anesthetic.
1: So, I mean, it's uh, in some cases, indeed, the drugs cure the symptoms, which is pain. But in all drug discovery, it's all biology-based. It's based on knowledge yeah. of the target, knowledge of metabolism, knowledge of everything. So it's very, very... Uh, uh, Rational uh, design, design. I so,
0: agree, and I think that we could do an entire other episode on on this topic and <laughs> dispel. Well, you know,
1: I'm uh, not medicine. in drug discovery, but uh, yeah. you know, I know how it works. I did it for five years, and it's very difficult business because, again,
0: well, medicine. I mean, alternative, you know, d- dispelling myths about uh, alternative medicine. Well, you know,
1: alternative medicine, medicine is not my field, so I don't want to dis- you know dis- dismiss everything. But when I hear that alternative medicine like uh, homeopathy addresses the disease, whereas we address the symptoms. It's just, uh, I cannot believe the thinking people say that. Uh, it's just ridiculous, right? So we yeah. don't know what homeopathy is. Well, and in fact,
0: quite. there's almost nobody that has any education in the sciences that would say that,
1: really. But as a matter of fact, there are blogs that state that, and people, you know, like machines, repeat the slogan without really understanding it, to just repeat what mm-hmm. these blog say.
0: Well, because if that's what you want to hear, you will go to the Internet. The Internet is the place where everybody validates their pre-existing bias. So if they want to believe that and they see something on the Internet that says that, doesn't really matter what the source is or who wrote it, that's now truth. You know, We're living in the post-truth era, unfortunately. So
1: what I would like to see outside my job is a better uh, appreciation of um, how difficult it is to come up with drugs, how... Um You know, the great successes that uh, medicine has achieved, and I mean, the pharma industry is 80, 90 years old. Some of the diseases that we cured, uh, including including, uh, immunization, um, so we have eradicated major diseases. And I say that in my lectures, I don't think it makes a big impression on people because you know n- nobody's afraid of smallpox, but because I mean, they don't yeah. remember it. <laughs> if you had been born hundred years ago, you You'd probably would terrified. have died of one of these diseases: yep. pneumonia. Uh, you know, I had pneumonia when I was a kid. I, uh, I had pneumonia too, and it took about two days with uh, mm-hmm. erythromycin to get rid of it. Yeah. So I would like to hear to see a better appreciation of uh, what traditional so-called traditional science does. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to the industry if people uh, use homeopathy. I mean, I'm a little concerned that they have actually a master's program in homeopathy in Italy. Jesus a God. university which I shall not name has created the master's program in a what? You know, it's this is a university. We're not talking about private school here. Mm-hmm. So uh, that we're going in this direction. That's why people like you, who are interested in yes uh, communication, spreading the truth, you need uh, you have a big role.
0: This is uh, this has exactly to do with, uh,
1: the, with the health organization in the UK. I think the government is taking a strong stance against this, against validating homeopathy as a science. But in Italy, it is, and mm-hmm. uh, it's not everywhere. But again, the Ministry of Health I think is under the impression that the public wants this, and so but give it to them.
0: Right. Uh, well, that's uh, yeah. This is my calling here, <laughs> to to take down. Uh, all these uh, all uh, yeah just uh, anything that's anti-science or unscientific i'd like to inform the people i'd like to help well, them understand you know the
1: f- industry doesn't suffer i mean the pharma industry is a tr- one trillion dollar um, you know per year industry mm-hmm. homeopathy is, is a little over 10 billion a year so it's less than one percent of what the pharma is. so you know it's not that it's a concern am i mean, concerned for people that, who might be so misinformed that yeah. it had happened, that they have a serious disease, like yeah. an infection. And they avoid And they avoid uh, antibiotics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's a serious problem that mm-hmm. has manifested itself already and may spread out even more.
0: Well, I'm going to get to work on that right now. <laughs> so okay, good luck with that. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I need all the help I can get. Maybe you can help me a little bit. <laughs> but... Uh, anyway that was fun I'm glad we finally had the chance to uh, talk about this on the mics and I think that everybody listening uh, probably got a lot a lot out of it too so we'll do another one next year then let's all right. let's make this an annual thing so good all right thanks thanks night